welcome to the City of the Great King podcast with your host, Tyler Sawatsky. That's me. Hello. Is my voice sounding better or what? Or what? Yeah, that's right. Your boy's feeling better. Got some special vitamins. Did whatever I could. Feeling better. I rebounded. If you are watching the live stream, and I am live streaming this on video, Behind me in my Sawatsky studio, you can see my bicycle. My, you get to look at my bike. I spent a lot of hours on that bike, and I'm letting you look at it, so you should feel grateful about that. <clears throat> Welcome to episode 23, right? No, 24. <laughs> episode 24 of the CGK podcast. Glad you are stopping by. You are... Coming in in what I think is the final part of a mini-series that we're doing regarding the Reformation of Worship. We took the rise of Christian nationalism and used it to springboard into Christian nationalism is useless if we don't reform our worship. And the way that we do worship in the West is kind of a wild West. And so we're talking about where we are deficient in the way that we do worship. We're talking about what objectively is happening when we gather on Lord's Day. And then the positive reforms to align us with what the scriptures say. And that's what we're talking about today, is the more positive reforms that I that I'm, have been alluding to. So that's where we're at. Welcome to the show. Glad you're here. <clears throat> where we left off, I was talking about... Exodus chapter 24. I believe I read for you Exodus 24, and I pointed that out because that is where we are getting covenant renewed, or or at least covenant is being confirmed in Exodus 24, and all the elements that I talk about, about covenant renewal worship, are found in that chapter. So we finished reading it, we showed the different elements that come out of that worship gathering, the covenant being confirmed there. <clears throat> and I, I even have a quote from Kevin DeYoung. You know Kevin DeYoung? This is purely just to show you that I'm not off in cuckoo land making these things up. Actually, other people have talked and taught about covenant renewal worship well before I came onto the scene. What do you know? And he says this about Exodus 24 in an article called Worship as Covenant Renewal. And he's a very faithful pastor. Kevin DeYoung says, Exodus 24 is a worship service. The first official gathering of corporate worship in the Bible. It contains the basic elements of a public service and sets the pattern for biblical worship. Okay, so this all comes from Old Testament stuff. The way that we understand covenant renewal worship comes from the Old Testament. And that's what Kevin DeYoung is saying as well. There, uh, Back to DeYoung. There is a call to worship, an approach to worship made possible by a bloody sacrifice, the reading of God's word, a response to God's word, which is a fellowship meal, and a promise of God's presence as he draws near in worship. Five elements. As we gather to rehearse the Lord's covenant promises and provisions, he then references 1 Corinthians 11, the same elements should be found in our services today. One more paragraph from DeYoung. 
The historic liturgy of the Christian church did not originate in evangelicalism or in the Reformation or in Europe. That's a big point, by the way. It grew out of Old Testament and then New Testament assumptions about what it meant for God's people to gather and renew the covenant. The corporate gathering of God's people is not mainly for community or for fellowship or for moral instruction, though all these are present. We gather each Lord's Day um, <clears throat> to renew covenant. Every Sunday, last sentence, we come to worship our covenant-making God, be reminded of his covenant promises, and once again, renew our covenant commitment. The deepest and richest and most biblical worship will have a liturgy that reflects these ancient and continuing realities. That was Kevin DeYoung, Worship as Covenant Renewal. The only thing I would add to what he said, he says that every Sunday we're coming to worship our covenant-making God, be reminded of his covenant promises, and once again renew our covenant commitment. This is true. This is present. The only thing I would maybe edit about what he's saying is primarily, it's actually not us who is renewing covenant. It's actually God who's renewing covenant. And this is supposed to help us think less hyper-individualistically about worship, about corporate worship, about the Lord's Day. We are gathering so that God remembers covenant with us and renews it with us. And that's what the whole thrust of Exodus 24 was, too. God was renewing covenant with them. That's what happens in Joshua 24. That's what happens in 2 Samuel 7. God renews covenant. God makes the covenant, not not us. We are the responders. He is the initiator. <clears throat> and so I'm talking about liturgy too. And by now you know that I, I have a very high view of liturgy. Actually, liturgy cannot be avoided. Every single church has, has a liturgy. It's just the form of ceremonies and traditions that your church follows. Whatever you do every week in worship, that is your liturgy. I'm looking for... Oh, I don't have one in this Bible. I was going to pull out a bulletin that I have for my church. It just gives the order of service. What This is what happens then. Here's the singing. Here's the prayer. Here's the sermon. Here's the whatever. All that information is the liturgy. Everybody's got one. It's not a scary word. It's not just a word for Catholics or Anglicans. We all have liturgy. And the more, as Kevin DeYoung said himself, which I think was a fantastic sentence, the deepest and richest and most biblical worship will have a liturgy that reflects these ancient and continuing realities. we got to think deeply. As evangelicals, <clears throat> we don't always think the most deeply about our liturgy. We kind of just do stuff in our consumerist culture, and we adopt what we do in other institutions of society and just transport that onto the church. And... I think Kevin is exactly right, that our liturgy, the deepest and richest, will come from thinking more highly about our liturgy. And so, I, what we do in worship follows the basic covenantal pattern that is described in the Old Testament. And I taught about that in my earlier Sunday school classes. I commend it to you to listen to if you haven't done so already. It was in the Philemon course, Covenantal Structure explained covenantal structure uh, whatever there was two two on it you'll find it i encourage you to listen to that where i go into detail but essentially what we have are five elements as i said the first element that we see 
we call sovereignty. Sovereignty is the introducing of the parties of a covenant. If you're going to make a covenant, a blood-bound oath, a, a sacred agreement, you're going to make a covenant, you need to know who, who the parties are of it. And so when the Lord approaches people in the Old Testament, it is he always starts with, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Uh, so he identifies himself. He declares himself as the sovereign one. And that's part one of our worship service then. So each, each of the five elements that we see in the, in the covenants in the Old Testament have a part to play in our liturgy. Actually, before I get to the, the modern, the corresponding element, I'll just explain the five in the Old Testament. Sovereignty, introduce the parties, then mediation. You had to, the only way, so, so what God would then do, I am the Lord, the God who brought you out of Egypt. The God who, and you get this historical prologue of what God has done, how he's mediated for you. That's the next part when God makes covenants that he says. He introduces himself. He then explains how he is a mediator. I'm the God who did this. And then he gets, he launches into the stipulation or the law. Uh, based on what I've said, now I exhort you to, I command you to, you are going to be X, Y, Z. He then gets into the stipulation. Why he's coming, what the plan is there. So that's part three, stipulation slash law. And then four is the sanctions. After the Lord describes what his plan is by approaching these people and making covenant with them, it then comes to sanctions. If you obey me, you will be blessed, or these are the promises. If you do not obey, here are the curses that you will get. You will be judged. Read Joshua 24 for an excellent portrayal of that, <clears throat> as well as the end of Deuteronomy. So God introduces himself, sovereignty. He then talks, explains himself as the mediator, mediation. He then gives his stipulations, his law, what he wants them to do. He then provides the sanctions. You will be blessed if you obey. You will be cursed if you don't. And then as well as that is when you commit yourself through witnesses. So this is why Abraham would build stones. Why would he build like an altar of stones or something like that? And it acted as a witness for the covenant that was being made there. So you have witnesses as part of this. Um, and then finally, succession. So this is then the sending out, I will be with you, I will uh, I will fight your enemies, I will go before you. This, so the succession, the how, how you go from there, the sending out then. So those are the five elements of covenant renewal in the Old Testament. And so how all five of those correspond to modern day New Testament liturgy. So what is the sovereignty? The introducing of the party? That's the call to worship. Technically speaking, a worship service doesn't begin until you have been formally called to worship. And that corresponds to with trumpets of the Old Testament. The priest would blow the trumpets and that would indicate it's time to come. That's the call to worship. We're coming together now. And so you would read a scripture that definitively calls people to worship. There's plenty of psalms to use for that. But just a clear text which states... Come into his presence to worship. Come with gladness. We are your people. Something like that. Any type of psalm that calls the people to worship. Now your service has begun. At my own church, we do our, um, our announcements as right when we open up. Right? When people gather at 1030 on a Sunday, we start with announcements. And then it's only after we do the announcements, we then give the call to worship. The worship service didn't start when we started giving announcements. That's, that's technically not part of it. 
And a lot of churches are confused. Oh, we're, you know, there's no good part to put the announcements. Like, when do you do it? Do you do it after the music? Well, when do you do it? It's most proper to do before because it's not part of the service. So the, the call to worship, when that comes, you are now worshiping on the Lord's Day. Then secondly, uh, you, the second part, the mediation corresponds with the pastoral prayer. So this is a formal time of prayer where the pastor is going to represent the people and confess sin. I talked a lot last week about how you have to be cleaned up before you can go into God's presence. In the Old Testament, read Leviticus. You had to sacrifice some animals uh, in an ascension offering and in, in what they call a burnt offering. It's more like a tribute offering. You have to sacrifice animals to get to atone for your sin before you can go to God, before you can continue in that in that service, which is what we saw in Exodus 24 as well. And so the mediation part, the historical prologue, how God's a mediator, that is then the pastoral prayer, where our pastor is mediating for us. He is going to God, he's confessing corporately that we have sinned and fallen short. And then following that is meant to be the, uh, the declaration of absolution. You are declared, so usually there's, there's script, all kinds of scripture that talks about how we are forgiven. It is meant to be a scripture of assurance that we now have been forgiven for our sin. That those who are coming, those who are calling upon the Lord and being called to worship, we're confessing our sin corporately through the pastor. We are then being declared forgiven, cleansed of that. That's how we can proceed now. Because if you didn't do that in the Old Testament, go read what happens to some of these people who don't who don't do what the Lord says, Nadab and Abihu, and a bunch of others, God would quite literally kill people if they weren't cleaned up and tried to do unauthorized um, parts of worship. So it's a very serious business. After the prayer, we the, another, the next major part of the covenant renewal is, as I said before, the stipulation and the law. That is our sermon, the explaining of the scriptures. And... For a lot of people, the sermon is the only part that matters to them in church. All I go to church for is the sermon. Well, if we have an idea that all five parts of this structure, of this covenant renewal matters, we won't fall into the trap of overemphasizing the sermon. It's not a big deal if our sermons aren't an hour. They can be shorter because there is legitimate grace being communicated to us than from more than just the sermon. Now, I love the sermon. I, I love it, absolutely love it, always have, always will. But the, the danger of our time is that we think everything else doesn't really matter in worship, and all that matters is the, explain, the explaining of the Word of God. If your church even explains it. I mean, <laughs> Lord knows I've attended a lot of church that doesn't even actually explain the Scriptures. It's like a nice moral lecture. It's not even preaching the Bible. But... <clears throat> That corresponds with the third part of the covenantal structure. We are supposed to, it's supposed to be very biblical and explain the Bible. And the fourth part of the renewal was the sanctions. The sanctions was the blessing and the cursing and the witnessing. This is you binding yourself now to what you have heard. And that corresponds, of course, with Lord's Supper. This is the taking of the body and the bread. Or taking of the, the bread and the wine. Christ's body and his blood. And this is what we do after we have heard. We are going to commit ourselves to the sanctions of what we have heard. We, <clears throat> I think it is most appropriate, and I, I think Scripture leans this way, that 
the Lord's Supper should not be an infrequent thing. It seems to be a pretty regular thing. If there's a passage in Acts, uh, what we were breaking bread on the Lord's Day. Like it was just expected. It's Lord's Day, you break bread. You do communion. You remember him. When you come together, you formally remember uh, Christ and ask him to remember you. Um, so I am a fan of more frequent communion. I think the scriptures indicate that. And, that, and so we would do that after the sermon. And then finally, we have uh, succession. Succession, the continuing. So this is your, um, your benediction. The scripture or the prayer that is going to then send you out, uh, equip you with the Lord, be sent out. There's lots of the scriptures to use for a benediction as well. And then uh, corporate worship officially ends after the benediction. Once you have those five elements, you have, uh, you have completed the covenant renewal liturgy. And so other things to talk about there is music. In the class I talked about, where does music fit into all of this? Well, in a symbolic sense, music really is our response to God. Uh, God is doing these five parts. God is giving the call to worship through scripture. God is forgiving us, uh, absolving us of our sin through the prayers. God is teaching us through the explaining of his word, if it's being faithfully preached. God is renewing uh, covenant with us through the sanctions, with the Lord's Supper, he's communicating the grace to us, and God is equipping us through the benediction. So the music is not one of those five parts, but the music is our response to God in each of those five parts. So it's appropriate to sing after the call to worship. He calls us, we respond to God in song. We pray, we respond to God after we've been forgiven with thankfulness. Uh, we hear the scriptures taught, uh, preached, we respond with a song. Same thing with after the after Lord's Supper, after we witness baptisms, we praise the Lord in song. It's our response to what he's doing, because he's doing those five elements. Music's our response. But we don't get to talk over God. Okay, this is an important thing. Churches that overemphasize music in a spiritual and symbolic sense are saying that they deserve to speak more than God. I talked before that the sermon doesn't need to be an hour long. Well, your music shouldn't be an hour long. Unless your sermon's going to be, or your service is going to be two to three hours long. Because if music is our response back to God, we don't get to talk over God. What God does in those five elements is more significant and is the actual communicator of grace. So it should have greater priority in a service than what we do, which is the, top, the, the singing. And I love singing. Big fan of singing. But it fits after as a response to each of those five elements of liturgy, but we don't overemphasize music. We should not overemphasize music and be singing and repeating our songs over and over and over again in the same service, singing eight, nine, ten songs, and everything else is just kind of quickly gone through. It's a whatever thing. That's emphasizing us over God when we do that. I don't want to minimize music, though. It's just from my charismatic background, I, I say that. If you are more, if you were raised Reformed, you, you, this, that probably doesn't really apply to you. And then the tithe. There's different ideas about the tithe, but uh, the tithing is obviously a very important part of worship. Now, how do we positively move in these directions then? We've talked about these five points of liturgy and how it's important that we view worship as covenant renewal. Well, what are some other ways that we can align what we practically do liturgically with this covenant renewal? 
I just kind of dunked on overemphasizing singing, but let me say something positive about singing. In the Old Testament, they sang all the time to God. They, it was an important part of their worship, the songs that they would sing. And we have an entire book of the Bible that gives us the songs that they would sing. It's not necessarily all of them, but God has preserved 150 songs for us to sing to him. Divinely authorized songs that are full of emotion, full of different internal struggles, full of triumph, full of praise, full of even imprecatory singing, asking for God's judgment on others. Except you're not going to stain it by you trying to come up with your own words about how to express those things. These are God-ordained God-authorized songs that we can sing, and it's in the Psalms. I am a stan for bringing back psalm singing in our worship, and a lot of Reformed churches still do, but a lot of us evangelicals do not. And I think it is a... We're missing out on a lot by not singing the psalms. I'm going to read a quick paragraph. This is by a pastor named Jeffrey Myers. He uh, has a little brief answers to frequently asked questions in this book here. Why do we sing psalms? Very good question. His answer, we sing psalms because these are the sung prayers that God has given to Israel and the church. The psalms give us words to express the full range of human emotions in prayer to God. When we have the words of the psalms in our minds and hearts, we have divine authorized content and forms of prayer. You are singing prayers to God. How beautiful is that? And the fact that we can express the full range of human emotions through these. Because if you're sad, you're going to get a lot of psalms, uh, divinely authorized prayers that you can sing to God that express the heaviness of heart, which we know is sadness and depression and anger and wanting to cast judgment. You have, you can express the full range of emotions when you sing the Psalms, and you're not going to muddy it up with your sin nature and trying to do it yourself, or trying to shout at God or something like that. <clears throat> so Psalm singing is very beautiful when it's done. There's Psalm chanting. Um, maybe I'll talk about that one day. But we are supposed to be singing Psalms. We get that even from Colossians 3.16 in the New Testament. How are we supposed to address one another in the congregation? Through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It was 33% of that statement that we were supposed to be singing psalms. Divinely authorized prayers that express the full range of human emotion. I, I can't think of anything better. We would greatly help the reformation of our worship if we started singing the psalms. Another thing I think about that, because there is so much life and range of life described in the psalms, if we are singing these things together in fellowship, and we are hearing this all the time, like we're hearing and singing scripture, don't you think that we would have fewer church politics going on? We'd have less need for counseling sessions? I mean, I, I honestly am submitting this. If we were shouting, singing, chanting these prayers to God, how and, and the grace that would be communicated to us through it, would that not just 
help us emotionally and, and, and mentally in a significant way that we would be ministered to through it. We wouldn't... We would have... I'm struggling to find the right words as I don't want to I don't want to say something that's that's off about this. Um, it's hard to overemphasize though. Like we would have fewer need for counseling, pastoral counseling if we sang the psalms. You might think that's a jump, but I encourage you to think more about that. Because we can deal with a lot of our emotions, a lot of our frustrations through the prayers that are there. And we get to sing them with our brothers and sisters around us. This is what I want to want to say. I've learned a long time ago that it's hard to stay angry with somebody that you're praying for. Okay? When I am most angry with somebody or most frustrated with them, it's hard to stay angry and sin in my anger if I start praying for them. And I encourage you to do the same. So immediately when I notice that I am thinking horribly about somebody, or maybe I'm starting to drift towards imprecatory psalms on somebody, I start just praying for them, for their soul, for the individual, for the Lord to bless them. And after I'm done praying for them, I'm not as mad anymore. Or at least I'm not sinning in my anger. So if we, when we deal with our emotions, biblically, it's going to promote healthy fellowship in our churches. It's going to promote the building, the unity of the body. I think about COVID and how many, how much division there was and still is in COVID, and rightfully so for various reasons. If we were singing the Psalms in the churches, I'm not sure we would have felt the fallout of all that division and anger and animosity and questioning of motives and the lack of truth seeking. You know, sing Psalms. It, we will go very far in reforming our worship, and the kind of another point I'm making here is when we've reformed our worship, we can rightly point our nation. Our nation will be blessed when the church is singing psalms again. So I'll talk a lot more about that in the future. But practically reforming worship, get into psalm singing in your church. It would solve a lot of our issues. Another one, and I'm a big fan of this, is having more antiphonal singing and congregational response, or at least antiphonal uh, responses, and uh, all that means is there's a statement by somebody, and then a group of people respond. Uh, I think I gave an example last week, the Lord be with you, and the Lord be with you, the response from the congregation. Other forms of antiphonal response, um, I remember when I was in a church in Montreal, this was actually the final Pentecostal church that I was involved in in my life. And it was a typical Pentecostal church, except for one thing that blew me away. I had never experienced this before. But before the sermon, after some of the prayers and whatever, the church would recite the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed together. Like the for 20 years they had been doing that just reciting one of the creeds together, and they would just alternate what creed they do. And the church was very used to it. They were taught how to do it. They read well. They read aloud in a firm voice. They loved to do it. They're doing it in unison. It was beautiful. We think of a lot of the doctrinal disagreements we can have. Like, if we're all corporately confessing together like that, that can remind us that we're, we're serving mutually 
the Lord of glory. And these are the truths that we're confessing together. Again, that could bring a lot of healing in our churches. But so more antiphonal response, congregational response, even antiphonal singing. You remember those old songs where like the men would have a part and the women would have a part? I think that's beautiful stuff. Hard to teach a congregation that doesn't know it, but, <coughs> but just beautiful stuff. Um, there's even a lot of people who believe that we should have more congregational prayer going on. So beyond just the confessing a creed or a confession, question and answer, that we <clears throat> read prayers together too, and that was popu that remains popular in the Anglican churches, amongst others. Again, from Jeff Myers talking about a primer on liturgy. This is his position. He says, We want to express our unity as a local body of Christ, so the worship service is scripted. This is so that we can all participate together. We don't just listen to the pastor pray. We will all pray out loud together using a common prayer. Not only does this allow us to participate in unison as an assembly, but it also helps mold and shape us as individuals. Through these repetitive sequences, the Spirit trains us how to pray and how to relate to our Lord. So, if, you are, if we all start praying together, we are going to be taught how to pray, taught how to relate to our Lord, and not only that, but, but those words are going to come back to you throughout the week. The more the congregation is involved in, in reciting stuff or, or do, giving a common prayer, we are going to have those words brought back to us throughout the week where we are taught through those practices how to think about the Lord throughout our week. And those prayers will come back to us. Now, some will say, okay, if you're doing it every single week you're, or like you're cycling through a couple prayers and all praying them together, like that's going to get very repetitive and kind of lose its meaning. Like, what, do you, what about that? Jeff Myers goes on. There's no reason to fear repetition in the liturgy. You don't ever grow tired of saying similar things to your spouse or your parents or your friends. Ritual words such as, I love you and thank you, along with many other recurring phrases in ordinary life, are foundational for maintaining healthy personal relations. So why would we think differently about our liturgy? When, it's, when the stakes are higher than saying I love you to your spouse or thank you to somebody who does something nice, the stakes are higher on the Lord's Day worship, renewing our covenant. And so we, we have more fear. We think less of that out of fear of repetition <clears throat> that will like lose its meaning or something. Now we're talking to our Lord, asking him to renew covenant with us. No, I don't think we would grow tired of uh, beautifully scripted prayers uh, the creeds that we can say together, confession and question and answer together. Basically, one of my main points here is that worship is not supposed to be individualistic. It's supposed to be corporate. Otherwise, we would have nothing to say to all those who say, yeah, just stay home, keep on uh, doing online worship. Yeah, that's fine. You know, you don't actually need to come. It, it, it's, it's fine. You don't need to physically be here. No, we don't say that. We don't at all because we recognize it. This is a corporate coming together that the Bible expressly commands us to do. <coughs> okay, so more congregational response. Third, we need to bring back the mediatorial prayer of confession and absolution. I already talked about the prayer as part of the mediation part of the liturgy. This is your pastoral prayer, the prayer of confession. We need to be bringing these things back. 
that prayer time is not just, or a lot of churches don't even have that formal prayer time, but even the ones that do, the reason that we do it is supposed to be the corporate confession and absolution. Because you can't, you're not supposed to proceed in worship unless you've been cleansed before the Lord. So it's it's not just a willy-nilly, oh, we're just going to pray here about just kind of whatever comes to mind, whatever the needs are of that week. You you can pray for the needs of that week. I think that's part of mediating for the people. But first, we got to get cleaned up spiritually. We have to confess our sin and receive absolution. So we got to bring back the formal mediatorial prayer of confession and absolution. And, and Again, as part of your prayers, then we can come before the Lord and make our requests for these people who are sick, for those who are struggling financially, for those who need a job, and whatever. You can definitely do that, but let's deal with our sin and absolution first. And then practically reforming worship, more frequent uh, Lord's Supper and feasting. So, I don't know about you, but this whole thin wafer and tiny bit of grape juice... I'm not seeing it in scripture. I'm reading 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 11. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. You'll know the passage. Uh, he's not going to commend them because when, when they come together, it's not for better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there's divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating... Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? I will not. Okay, so there is enough food there to have a feast. Enough to be filled, to have full meals. There's enough wine there to get drunk. And... Obviously, the drunkenness is a sin, but Paul's primary concern here is not that they ate a lot. It's not that they drank a lot. His concern is that they weren't waiting for each other, doing it in unison, because this is supposed to be a corporate act that we do together in worship, but nope, they're they're just uh, throwing by the wayside the significance of what's happening. They're doing it at different times, and they're not leaving some for those who don't have. His bigger concern is that they're humiliating those who have nothing. Not the fact that they ate a lot. Not the fact that they drank a lot. Hey, if you can handle some extra wine, go for it. So, <clears throat> so yeah, the bigger issue is that it wasn't being a intent. It wasn't an intentional corporate action when they were coming together. And then he says that the Lord, um, verse twenty four, when he had given thanks, he broke it. That is the bread, and said, "This is my body, which is for you. Do in remembrance of me." In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, "The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." So there's two separate acts here. You got the bread, lifts it. It's bread, not a wafer. It's a bread. He's going to bless it, so pray over it. He's going to break it. He's going to dispense it, and we are going to take together. And, and then after that's done, he's going to take wine, lift it, bless it, pass it out, and we take it together. Two distinct acts done in unison, bread and wine. Now, I get that we can't necessarily have a feast just in the middle of our services every Sunday, there's other things to do in our in our liturgy, but here's one thing that I'm partial to. I like the idea 
I don't like the idea. I think the Bible says we should be giving out bread and wine. Unless there's some reason that you can't have wine, then we can make exceptions for grape juice. But wine should be the standard and bread should be the standard. And we should break from a common loaf, give a little piece to everybody, take from common bottles, give, give some wine to everybody, and afterwards have common feasting. As in after the service, after the benediction. So we did the symbolic side of it with a small amount of bread and wine, but then the church coming together regularly to feast. That's really what was what was supposed to be happening. They're, they're providing for each other through the Lord's Supper. And like I said, there's enough food and wine there to get very full and to get drunk. And we don't we're not capturing the fellowship and the fullness essence of it when we limit it to just this tiny thing that isn't even bread and is not even wine. So like a lot of our churches don't even do the basic things right on this. Why would we expect the Lord to bless us when we're not even doing the basic things that he commands? That's a that's something you can think about cuz that's pretty uh significant. Worship's objective. Things are actually happening in worship. We need to be thinking more about our liturgies and what we're doing. I'm going to I quoted this guy last week. Uh Reverend Daniel Hyde, welcome to a reformed church. Just want to read another thing concluding his uh chapter here on worship of God by God for God. He's talking about Lord's Day. Conclusion. The regulative principle of worship is what makes Reformed churches so different in form and substance from the mass of contemporary churches across the land today. Any given church in your community, this is huge, will say that its worship is biblical, but the question is whether this is truly the case. What stands out today in contemporary Christian worship? Rock bands? Relevant sermons, i.e. things you want to hear, dramas, skits, entertaining speakers, and the list goes on. Lost in all of this is what God requires. May God cause us to, to rediscover his word to reform our worship as in the days of King Josiah. And to cry out in the king's words, quote, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. End quote. 2 Kings 22.13 Worship's objective. And what we are doing is renewing covenant with God. But not primarily is it us going to God to renew it. Uh, the final thing I'll quote from Jeffrey Myers here. He's um, <clears throat> in the section titled, A Glossary of Terms Used in the Service, Memorial. The Lord's Supper is a memorial meal, but not primarily because it's given for us to remember. Oh, Rather, when we do what our Lord has given us to do, we remind God of his covenant promises to come to our aid. We memorialize God, asking him to remember the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus and be faithful to his promise to be with us. We want God to stay in covenant with us, right? Well, then we are asking him to renew covenant with us. I want to thank you for listening today, please consider the Patreon. Uh, consider giving me your coffee money. I'd greatly appreciate that. Thank you for listening. We'll get on to something else next week. Please give me feedback if you have any. Go in the nations. God bless you. Bye-bye.